Thanks for listening to this audio podcast from Redemption Life Church. Listen as Pastor Michael Cox teaches on your exit strategy. Today, I would not so much call this, this is the last service of this year. This is the last service of this decade. Isn't that crazy? Time just keeps rolling on, doesn't it? The last service of the decade, which means this is my last sermon of the decade, right? And, um, and I don't really have a sermon today. I would just call this a, a prophetic invitation that I want to give you for these next three days. Um, I, I would call today an exit strategy. Okay, we're leaving a year, we're leaving a decade, and I believe that we need to formulate and be prepared with an exit strategy to exit well. How many people know how you leave one season is how you enter the next season? So we want to exit well. So sometimes all we think about is how we're going to enter. When people leave jobs, all they think about is how they're going to get in their new job. But you got to think about how you're going to leave your current job, right? You got to think about how you're exiting relationships and exiting responsibilities and exiting assignments before you enter into a new assignment because you're carrying all that baggage of undealt with issues into your next assignment. And so we need an exit strategy as much as we need vision for the future. <clears throat> we need an exit strategy. Maybe I clear my throat. I'm gonna say it better this time. John's the only one that heard it. We, uh, you need an exit strategy as much as you need vision for the future. Yeah. There you go. A few more I got. That's good. So it's very, very important, and we're gonna talk a lot. Um, we don't have a 2020 slogan. We've never had a yearly slogan. All right. Um, and I'm not going to say this is what God is going to do in 2020, all right? But I believe that there are invitations that we can come into agreement with the kingdom by faith and lay hold of certain things that we target. So we can purpose in our heart to make declarations over 2020 and position ourselves to receive certain things in 2020, Okay, like if I said 2020 is perfect vision, so God's given us perfect vision in 2020. That means God, perfect vision wasn't available in 2019. That's crazy. Perfect vision was available, and people could purpose their heart and say, man, all I want is vision, God. That's what I'm setting my heart on, and he would have met them there and gave them. If anyone likes wisdom, ask. If anyone wants vision, ask. Ask, ask, ask. But we can, as a body... We can lay siege on 2020. I don't want to get too much on 2020. We're going to talk more about that later. But I believe it's going to be a year of vision. And um, I believe that because we're going to set our heart on that. And we're going to believe God for that. And we're going to seek that. And we're going to ask for that. And so uh, I want to talk more about that. But I want to... Before we get to a year of vision in 2020, I, I want to kind of just talk to you a little bit 
the children of Israel are in bondage in Egypt, right? And Moses um, has an encounter with God in a burning bush, right? And he's told to go and lead the people out of Egypt, out of slavery, okay? And, of course, Moses said, they're not going to listen to me and all this stuff, and I don't have anything, and he tells him he has his staff, what's in your hand, he has a staff, so God uses that staff. And so, just a little side note, 2020 is in our hand, God can use it. God could use anything that we come to realization that it can be a tool for him to use, and we submit it to him, right? And so, he's got a staff, he's got Aaron, his brother, And he says, Aaron will speak for you. Take this staff. It'll be a sign and a wonder. And so um, Moses goes to meet with Pharaoh to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. We've got to fast forward this story. Um, and we come to the last plague. Okay, there's ten plagues because Pharaoh keeps hardening his heart and saying no. God hardens Pharaoh's heart, actually. And Pharaoh says no. And they come to this last plague and it's the killing of the firstborn in all of Egypt and so they have this Passover lamb, this Passover uh, uh, dinner and so they eat this lamb and they take the blood and they put it on the doorpost of their house and the death angel passes over and does not kill anyone that has that blood covering them. Then they go out of Egypt and start their journey to the promised land, right? And so it's such a, an amazing picture, uh, foreshadowing and just very clear um, evidence of what Jesus came to do, right? So Jesus comes on the Passover and um, becomes the Passover lamb, and now his blood covers us, and that's what keeps the devourer away from us. And we have eternal life through Christ and through his sacrifice. But what I think is really amazing is when you just kind of keep taking that journey a little bit further. So they come out because of the Passover lamb, right? But their first stop is their time to die. So they they come out because of the Passover lamb, but it's like to get to the promise, they have to join the Passover lamb in death. So they come to the Red Sea, and the Red Sea parts, and this is a picture of baptism. They go into the water, okay, and it's certain death. Can you imagine the Red Sea piled up on both sides of you? You can't go into that unless you're completely in faith and surrendered to God willing to die because he said go into the water, right? So they go into the water, but what happens is they don't die, but what was chasing them dies, okay? We talk about this a lot during baptism, going into the water and things that are chasing you, it just being a a prophetic picture and an awesome declaration, and we just have faith that we go into the water and come up, and some of those things just drown that have been pursuing us and tormenting us and chasing us. And so that's the picture of them joining in the Passover. 
okay? And then we, you get to uh, Romans 6, verse 1. So what do we do then? Do we persist in sin so that God's kindness and grace will increase? What a terrible thought. We have died to sin once and for all as a dead man passes away from this life. So how could we live under sin's rule a moment longer? Or have you forgotten that all of us who were immersed into union with Jesus, the anointed one, were immersed into union with his death? Sharing in his death by our baptism means that we were co-buried and entombed with him so that when the Father's glory raised Christ from the dead, we were also raised with him. We have been co-resurrected with him so that we would be empowered to walk in the freshness of new life. For since we are permanently grafted into him to experience a death like this, then we are permanently grafted into him to experience a resurrection like his and the new life that it imparts. Could it be any clearer that our former identity is now and forever deprived of its power? For we were co-crucified with him to dismantle the stronghold of sin within us so that we would not continue to live one moment longer submitted to sin's power. We need an exit strategy. Not one moment longer do we stay in sin's power. Obviously, verse 7, a dead person is incapable of sinning. And if we were co-crucified with the anointed one, we know that we will also share in the fullness of his life. And we know that since the anointed one has been raised from the dead to die no more, his resurrection life has vanquished death and its power over him is finished. For by his sacrifice, he died to sin's power once and for all, but he now lives continuously for the father's pleasure. So let it be the same with you. Since you are now joined with him, you must continually view yourselves as dead and unresponsive to sin's appeal. While living daily for God's pleasure, in union with Jesus, the anointed one. I just see someone going into the hospital in an ambulance or an emergency room, and they say they're unresponsive. That's what the frantic that comes about in those situations, unresponsive. Tammy, tell me a testimony. They had someone die in one of their services, a couple a Christmas production like two weeks ago, and they had just bought a, um, a defibrillator. What is the machine? A AID? AED machine in the church just maybe a month before. And the doctors say there's no way this man would have lived if they did not have that machine. So isn't that really cool? But he was unresponsive for a large amount of time. They could not get him to respond. But the frantic that goes around when it's unresponsive. And so I just see us in the flesh unresponsive and heaven doesn't panic at all. They're just like, that's perfect. But I see hell like franticking, frantic. They're like sending things like 
bringing temptation, bringing all these things, trying to get you to think the way you used to think, try to get you to do what you used to do, try to get you tormented and reactionary and all this stuff. And then they're like, he's unresponsive. It's like he's dead. Yes, I'm just living for God's pleasure. And so they come out, this exit strategy out of Egypt is through the blood of a lamb and through following him into certain death and baptism. And so we see it the same in the New Testament. We come into union with God through the death of the lamb, right, and his resurrection and us joining with him in death, burial, and resurrection. The old is gone. The new has come, right? And so that's our exit strategy out of sin. We come into union with the death of Christ. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. I love that. Just a picture of our outer man diminishing, decreasing, so that he must increase. And we're just powering up on the inside, right? And so it's so awesome being renewed day by day for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. Yeah. <clears throat> I want to make a shift here a little bit. When we talk about the things that are seen and not seen, and when we talk about an exit strategy going through the Passover lamb and going through union with him through our own encounter with death, and resurrection, right? And being born again into new life. But I want us to make a little shift. If you will, turn to Acts. If you have your Bibles, it'll be on the screen. We're going to read this. It's a little lengthy. We're going to read this whole story here, verse 1 through 22 of Saul and his conversion on the road to Damascus. Okay, we'll start in verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, <clears throat> went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, isn't that awesome, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly... A light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. 
Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priest? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. I think it's amazing that Saul got struck by light, fell off his donkey, and was blinded for three days, and then regained his sight. And so the picture that I'm trying to paint today and what I'm hearing for us is this coming into perfect vision. The exit strategy of leaving distorted vision and entering into perfect vision is blindness. Blindness. I think it's amazing that Saul lost his sight for three days. What an amazing picture. Jesus went into the grave for three days. We're buried with him in the likeness of his death. For three days, right? And so we raised with him. So when we talk about a season of vision, a time when we enter into increased vision and perfect vision, I believe our exit strategy for this year and for this decade is to ask God to blind us from blurred vision. We see in Philippians 3, this is the same man writing this. After this encounter, Philippians 3, another extended passage. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Um, 
to write the same things is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Paul's saying, anybody that's got confidence in the flesh, I've got more reason to put confidence in my flesh. So what, I'm, what, what we're seeing here in Philippians 3 is what, how Paul saw things before he went blind, okay? And so he was building a life. He was building his um, resume before he could see correctly. So blurred vision and disturbed vision and wrong sight causes us to put confidence in our flesh, if anyone else has a mind to, I far more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me when I couldn't see, I added that paraphrase, those things I've counted lost for the sake of really seeing Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view. You see that little put there, thing there? In view. I like that. There's a little play on words there. Obviously, it's just saying in view of, in contrast to, but it's really neat that the words there are in view. I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as, as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many are perfect, have this attitude, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you also. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, joining and following my example, and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I've often told you and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross. Verse 19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame, whose set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into the conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he is even subject to all things to himself. This is the old mind. This is what he found 
worth in and he's blind. Look at verse 19. This really just stuck out to me in looking back at this passage from Paul. This is one of my favorite passages because it's just so real and so genuine. And it's such a challenge to us to lay down all our ideas about what we find worth in. To follow Paul in that. But this line, and whose glory is their shame. See, the things that I think that we need to deal with and go blind to in these next few days before the new year is how we see God, how we see ourselves, and how we see others. How we see God, how we see ourselves, and how we see others. I feel like if the church could really have clear vision, see God right, see themselves right, and see others right, it would be daylight and dark difference from the church we have right now. And so living life in the church, living life with myself, living life with my spouse, living life with my kids, living life with people that know Christ, living life with you guys, living life with other believers that know Christ, yet have such distorted views of who he is and who they are. And who other people are. And this manifests in offense. Offense with God. Offense with others. Unforgiveness. Shame. Because we don't know who God is. And we don't know what he thinks about us. And how he feels about us. And what he means toward us. And how he sees us. Then we are offended with God, and we can't see ourselves right. So we take every false idea about who we are that comes along from culture, and we bite on it. And we end up with guilt and shame, condemnation, and self-loathing, right? We hate ourselves. This passage says, whose glory is their shame. Your glory is the essence and reputation of who you are. It's just, it's like a garment with just your reputation written on it. And you see that glory, you see that garment, and it can just, it can completely define you. Because it just is your glory. It's the essence and reputation. It's what you, you are, it's what you're consistent of. Their glory is their shame. And so you can't love other people if you can't love yourself. Can't love yourself if you can't love God. I've said many times, you know, I don't look at people and say, man, you need to love God more. It's the vision of this house. Love God, love people, live truth. You can't just love God more. You've got to have a redemptive revelation of how God feels about you. That's what causes us to love God. We can't first love God. He first loved us. That's the only way we can love him 
It wasn't our idea to love God. It wasn't our idea to come to him. It was his idea to come to us, and it was his idea to love us. That's who he is. That is his glory. That is his essence and his reputation. But when we don't know who God is, when we don't know what his nature is and what his heart is, then it perverts how we see ourselves. And we can't love other people. So we've got people that love to worship. We've got people who seem exuberant in their passion for God. But they hate people. I don't know what you're worshiping, but it's not God. You're just worshiping exuberance in itself. You're just worshiping exuberant expression in its form, and you can exuberantly express yourself in many ways and feel great about it, but you're not shaping your worth in the face of love. Forgiveness, unforgiveness is rampant in the church. We cannot see rightly. I don't care how many slogans we put on 2020. 2020 vision, see rightly, see clear, hate your brother, you're going to have distorted, perverted vision. Period. And I really didn't plan to go here like this, but let me just read this Proverbs 26. It's the very end, guys. I just threw it on there just in case, but I just let's just go here real quick. This passage should not be the glory of people who worship Jesus. You grab a mad dog by the ears when you butt into a quarrel that's none of your business. People who shrug off deliberate deception saying, I didn't mean it, I was only joking, are worse than careless campers who walk away from smoldering campfires. You take a little jab. I was just kidding. Think about that for a couple of days. It's like leaving a smoldering campfire. You know it's going to bring destruction and devastation. When you run out of wood, the fire goes out. When the gossip ends, the quarrel dies down. If the gossip would stop, there wouldn't be so much division. This is not a message today because we have something going on in the church. I'm not aware of anything in the church. I just see broken people every day, everywhere I look, that are so ready to lash out. And it's not because they're evil, and it's not because you're evil, and it's not because you're bad. It's because we are broken, and we are letting conformed thinking inform our responses out of brokenness. I've said it many times, the adversary of your soul likes to, what's the word I use? Exploit your weaknesses to 
exploit others' weaknesses. He has plans for us, just like God has plans for us. And he knows the seeds of brokenness that he's planted in your life throughout your life. And he tries to come and harvest those seeds at times in your life. And he comes and he tries to bring about those things. And he does it in a way, he's, he's strategic. He's not just going to come over here and try to mess with myself. He's going to put me in relationship. We talk about finding relationships that bring out the best. With The adversary of your soul is trying to put you in some relationships that bring out your worst. And so he, he's going to put you into the most destructive relationship he possibly can. Where their brokenness cries out to your brokenness and brings about the greatest amount of devastation. That's the plan. And so even just in acquaintances in church, he knows he's going to have you walk past. You're gonna, when you're walking past the person that has a place of brokenness, he's going to make you respond to some place of brokenness and make a statement right beside them and it's going to be what is their greatest place of brokenness and it's going to call out to them and you're both going to leave just tormented. When the gossip ends, the quarrel dies down. A quarrelsome person in a dispute is like kerosene thrown on a fire. Listening to gossip is like eating... Cheap candy. Do you want junk like that in your belly? <laughs> this is the message, by the way. <laughs> Smooth talk from an evil heart is like glaze on cracked pottery. Your enemy shakes hands and greets you like an old friend, all while conniving against you. When he speaks warmly to you, don't believe him for a minute. He's just waiting for the chance to rip you off. No matter how cunningly he conceals his malice, eventually his evil will be exposed in public. Malice backfires. Spite boomerangs. Liars hate their victims. Flatterers sabotage trust. There's a quote in a book. The book's titled Unpunishable. Danny Silk wrote it. I picked it up at a conference a few, uh, a month ago now, and um, read it, brought it home, and had the guys, uh, staff at RLH, Luis and Blake, order it and read it. And uh, I think I'm getting ready to order it for all the staff to read. I encourage it for anybody. Unpunishable by Danny Silk. But here's a quote from it. Blake actually shared this quote the other day, and... I've been sharing it with everybody. It's a great quote just to sum up that book, but it so well communicates what I'm trying to say today. Reconciliation means trading in the fear-fueled connections of orphans for love-fueled connections of sons and daughters. At their core, orphan relationships are the agreement... Listen to this. Orphan relationships are the agreement of two self-preservationists. Two self-preservationists to use one another to meet their own needs. 
Reminds me of um, this little saying I saw one time. These dogs were in a, a little pet store, and these people were standing outside in the snow looking at the dogs, and they were just all piled up on one another. And somebody said, oh, look at those dogs keeping each other warm. And somebody, probably a more realist, a little bit cynical, said they're keeping themselves warm, right? Self-preservationist trying to um, use one another to meet their own needs. New covenant relationships are the agreement between sons and daughters to lay down their lives in self-giving love to meet one another's needs. Repentance and forgiveness enables us to break our old agreements and form new agreements. That's reconciliation. Orphan relationships are just two self-preservationists. We call it codependence. Codependent relationship. All right? And you'll hear this a lot of times from codependent relationships. We, we kill each other. We have a hard time. We fight like cats and dogs, but you're still my ride or die, right? So it's like, I don't like you. You don't like me. But at the end of the day, we got each other. You know? We're meeting some need, some purpose for one another. And when I read this quote... Some of you in here may be like, that sounds like a novel idea. I wish that self-preservationist that I've been in a relationship with would start giving their life sacrificially and love me. Reminds me of the two boys that got up and mom cooked pancakes and she told them, sat, sat two of them down and one pancake was bigger than the other and they were fighting over it. And she said, hey... Jesus would give the other brother the bigger pancake. And so the one brother looked at the other brother and said, hey, you be Jesus today. <laughs> so I'm sure when I read Proverbs 26 and I read this quote, some of us got some people in mind that need to be like Jesus. I would say if you're in a reactionary relationship with someone that needs to be more like Jesus and they come to your mind right off, then you're probably in that relationship with them because you're like them. Nobody like that. I just went, I went over like a lamb balloon, didn't I? Because I'm in a relationship with a lot of self-preservationists, but I don't get to a place with them that I have expectations of them to die for me because I understand that they're in that place of brokenness. But if we get to the place where they keep taking from us and diminishing us and all that, we've probably entered into it with a self-preserving idea ourselves. And what's in it for me? But all this comes <laughs> from... Offense with God. I love the bait of Satan, John Bevere. He says, you know, there's no such thing as offense with somebody else. It's offense with God. I mean, literally, what can you do to me if all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose? What could you do to me 
to offend me if I've got a proper view of what God does in me. If we, have a, if we have a firm grip of what he's done in me, then what can somebody do to us that takes that away? Matter of fact, offense with someone else is like screaming at Jesus and saying, what you did wasn't enough. What they've done to me has, is more devastating than what you did for me. And so we get offended with people, but it comes with offense with God. If we believe that all these things, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him that loved us, for I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But yet we go to our brother and be like, you've devastated me. I was talking with some people, that, I was talking with Jahan, and then I was talking with some more people the other day, you know, there's this saying, and I don't know where I heard it in counseling somewhere, and I've used it many times. Oh, I know where I heard it. I, a marriage conference Johanna and I went to when we were engaged right before we got married. Great conference. And they taught us to fight fair. So when you're fighting fair, you, you don't say, man, you always do that. You never do. You never pick up your clothes. You always make you say that. You all, and you use those just always and never, and you just slam them, and you, and where, where do you go from that, you know? And then we, we don't understand when they look at us and say, then why are you with me? Leave. If I always do all the wrong stuff and never do anything right, let's get out of this. But, so they taught us to fight fair, so you would come and you'd say, hey, um, can I talk to you about something, you know? When you do this, it makes me feel this, right? And so that's the way we were taught to fight fair. And so God's been kind of messing with me with that idea even over the last few weeks. Because I still think that is a weapon. If I come to you and say, hey, when you said this the other day, it made me feel this way. That's still a victim approach. And that's still accusatory. I'm saying you made me feel this way. What are you going to do about it? And what are they left with? Like, I didn't mean to do that. I didn't mean it that way. I didn't mean to feel, make you feel that way. I mean, they have to take ownership of how you feel and try to unpack how you feel and make you not feel that way. No human should have that responsibility. I got to unpack how you feel. I can't unpack how you feel. I can't make you feel differently. That's too big of a debt for me what if we came to each other and I think this is people who see God rightly and see themselves rightly and see other people rightly that everybody is just a broken mess everybody in this room is subject to say and do the wrong thing and hurt our feelings and that's our responsibility do you hear me that's our responsibility my feelings are my responsibility my feelings are not your responsibility. My feelings are my responsibility. Now, I can communicate to you 
as a friend, and this is how I think we should do it, hey, I feel this way. Now, I know I've got issues. We all have issues. And I know that I feel this way about a lot of stuff. And one of the things that makes me feel that way is when you say this. Do you think you could help me unpack the way I feel and somehow see what you said differently and understand why I feel the way I feel? Then you've just invited a friend to help you love yourself well. Not accuse them and put a burden on them and make them grovel for your forgiveness because they made you feel a bad way. Because you don't know if it's their fault or your fault that you felt that way. So why don't we be honest in our communication? I'd be so much more excited to help someone unpack their feelings than defend why I made them feel that way. Or try to not make them not feel that way when I meant no harm to them, right? But we can't have, what I'm talking about today, we can't have any of these logical, loving, embracing, dialogue, communication, growth in relationships when we're looking through a lens that is corrupt. When we're, when we're viewing every relationship through our own brokenness. When we have expectations of relationships. Hey, if we're going to be friends, let's be friends. Come on up. Yeah, we're going to be friends. I've got a list of things in my life that I'm looking for somebody to help fix. That's the only reason I get in relationships with people. Right? So good luck. And when you don't, I'll let you know. Okay? That's how we self-preservationists join together. Guys, how do we do that in the church and win the world? How do we do that in worship and spirit and in truth? A worship that's so contagious that it breaks chains off people because they just can't, they're just overwhelmed by the awesomeness of God. And they see just our complete and utter surrender and reckless abandonment before him. But they'll never see that. Because they're going to look at you more than when you're in song and Jahan sings your favorite line. That's not when people judge our worship. They're looking at how we respond to a slight. They're looking at how we respond to when someone misspeaks. They're looking at how we respond when somebody treats us wrong or doesn't do what we thought they were supposed to do. We need, we need some more fuel in our worshiping God through loving others tank. That's a mouthful, right? I just believe God wants to bring healing. I really do. I believe there's so much corruption, for lack of a better word, in potential 
of the body and us individually because of skewed lenses and brokenness that people around us are paying a debt for. And we can't move forward. We just can't move forward. We just, every time we try to move forward, guys, if there is a gaping open wound in this world that we will have tribulation in, it is going to find the salt. You can't move forward in a salt-avoiding posture. We can't move forward in a way that's trying to avoid wounds and hurt. And so that's, I think, so much about what the body looks like. There's so much. Just, I don't, at this point, I really don't get angry with people that gossip and slander. It just breaks my heart. Because it comes from such a place of brokenness. Just, it just, wham! Accusatory. This slander. All this stuff. And it's just, John said it. I don't know where she got this from. But it just stayed with me, stayed with me, stayed with me. Um, how can you be mad at a blind person for being blind? How you get angry with them? You know, they can't see. You got to be compassionate, <laughs> sympathetic, have empathy, right? Love, grace, because they're blind. But you can't do that right. if you need something from the blind people. Right. If you're in that relationship because you need something from them, then you are not in that relationship to give and serve. And that's what all our relationships come down to so many times. Offense comes because we came into it with expectations to receive. All of our broken places to be fixed. All of our wants and desires for connection to be fulfilled through that person. And that's not their responsibility. You have to come into relationships already overflowing with fullness of communion with the Father. And then you come into relationships, like I say it all the time, I'm sorry, but Rocky and Rocky Five, sue me for what? Got nothing. You know, but on the other hand, take what from me? I got nothing. I'm totally surrendered to God. You can't take anything from me. I had no expectations of you. I just want to love you. I just want to be in relationship with you. I see the Father in you. I see the goat in you. I want to be a part of bringing about what's in you. I want to be a part of your life. I have no expectations of you. It's one of the hardest things with Redemption Lifehouse. I know Blake's heart. I know Luis's heart, my heart. Luis is a little bit more of a taskmaster. He had to try to tune it down. But... You know, Blake is not a disciplinarian and don't want to be, and I don't want to be. So it's kind of hard having to have some parameters 
on a ministry that has to have parameters, but knowing that the only thing that's ever going to flourish is just genuine relationship. And we're genuinely just in it to serve guys, so we can't have all these demands and expectations on them, but we have to have parameters. That's a really hard thing to balance. So here's what I think. This is what I'm asking you to do. This is my invitation. There were We just stayed in one area today. It was three areas I want to talk about, but I don't know. We talk about relationships today, I guess. I do think it's devastating. I do think it's the, the greatest issue we have in the church is people can't walk in fellowship with other people because we're so broken. We have such a high bar of expectation of everybody we come in contact with. But this is what I saw. There's three days left today, tomorrow, and Tuesday in this year. And, you know, Saul got docked off his donkey and was blind for three days. I invite you not to get knocked off your donkey. I wish I had a donkey. I would show this motion. But I invite you to get off of your donkey. There was a blanket right there a minute ago. Is there a blanket there now? Oh, she's got it. That's all right. Yeah, oh gosh, you just took it off of him here. <laughs> but in essence, this is what I think our next three days should look like. This is an invitation. Get off your donkey. I know you got things to do. So whatever it looks like for you with the schedule that you have, but somehow I think we should intentionally position ourselves off our donkey, lay down, and cover your eyes. And be intentionally blind for three days. Don't process things the way you used to process things. Don't have interactions the way you used to have interactions. Just make this your exit strategy out of a broken lens. Consecrate yourself before the Lord. Ask him to take away every false and preconceived idea, every... Uh, false thing that exhausts itself against the knowledge of Christ. Take it away. Bring clarity. Don't ask for vision. I'm not even talking about asking for vision right now. I'm just talking about asking to show me my negative vision, my broken vision. Can somebody come to the keyboard while I'm laying on the floor? I need floor laying music. I don't know what it looks like for you. Some of you may want to fast. Some of you may want to, I don't know, consecrate yourself in other ways. Some of you may have time that you can specifically lay aside some time over the next three days. But I really believe that if we will avail ourselves to this, 
that we'll be in position to enter into a season of clear vision. Very specifically, I think we need to ask if we have unforgiveness. Unforgiveness towards anyone else, unforgiveness towards God, and unforgiveness to ourselves. I think 90% of the reason why we can't walk in relationship with other people is because we have too much unforgiveness, guilt, and shame in our own self. Which goes back to not being able to see God rightly. The true freedom that he's given us and truly how he's covered us and we wear his righteousness. Todd White says, I'm so free from me, I can be free from you. I'm so free from me, I can be free from you. God, would you let us be free from ourselves? The tormenting ideas we have about ourselves and our own worth. You guys stand up with me, we're going to leave. Prayer team, if you can come in case somebody wants prayer today, please. I believe there's some wine that's coming in 2020 that you can't contain in your 2019 wine skin. I think God wants to send some relationships to us that absolutely blow our minds with fulfillment. But we can't process those relationships or enter into those relationships with the way we look at relationships today. Would you prepare us, God? This is a time of coming away with you. A time of consecration over these next three days. Would you, like a surgeon, Cut away the cataracts from our eyes. You know, in Philippians 3, he says we're the true circumcision. So we don't have to go through a ritual thing of being circumcised, but we are circumcised in our heart. We let those things be cut away from us in our heart. Those places of brokenness, those places that have become gross on us and blockages in us we let him cut those things away circumcision of the heart God I share this today
just from a heart of wanting to see people whole. Let us not be just in you in status only, but let us be in you fully in relationship with you, seeing what you see, knowing what you know, hearing what you hear. Let us look at broken people the way you look at broken people, not in fear of what they're going to take from us or how they're going to diminish us, but let's look at them with hope of how we can enhance them and grow them. Sow into them and make their world bigger. God, let us check our consumer mindset. Let's leave it in 2019. We don't consume we don't come shopping for you we don't come shopping for relationships we it's a sacrifice we come and we lay our life down on an altar before you we serve you not the other way around your love is so good your thoughts of us are so amazing but I never want to be at a place of entitlement and ungratefulness. Bring healing, bring healing, bring healing. God, would you heal every heart, every place of brokenness, every place of brokenness. God, we ask you for healing. God, we ask you for diagnosing it. We ask you for revealing it. In these next three days, would you reveal things to us? Would you show us places of brokenness? Would you show us devices of the adversary and how they have become attached and how they've inserted themselves and how they've worked in our life? Will you show us the schematics? Will you show us the game plan? Will you show us, will you just expose the tactics of our adversary? Would you just show us his devices and his schemes and his plans so that we would be able to just easily and methodically dismantle every weapon. No weapon formed against us shall prosper, but God, that doesn't mean that we don't consecrate ourselves and ask you to give us revelation of how to dismantle those weapons. You give every answer to every problem, solution to every question you are, but God, we just make ourselves available to you. Our exit strategy for this year, for this decade, is to consecrate ourselves before you. Saying, whatever that's in us that doesn't need to go into 2020, God, would you remove it? Purge us, clean us. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this audio podcast from Redemption Life Church. Be sure to stay connected with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Redemption Life.